Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. None of the parents suspected Sister Mary Margaret Cooper of anything improper, but neither could they understand why their church school was running a deficit every year. For 28 years, Sister Mary Margaret, an 80-year-old nun, had served as the principal of the St. James Catholic Church in Florence, California. But in 2021, when Sister Mary Margaret was 80 years of age, a federal judge sentenced her to one year and one day in the penitentiary for embezzling the money and defrauding parents. She was forced and uh, encouraged to repay more than $800,000 she had stolen from these parents and students. Her response, she said, I have sinned, I have broken the law, I have no excuses. She was right. In stealing that money, she had broken not only United States law, more importantly, she had broken God's law. In fact, she broke one of the most basic laws God has given to govern our lives and our society. It's found in Exodus 20:15, you shall not steal. If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 20 as we discover why we should respect the property of others. We're in a series I'm calling The Ten, How to Live and Love in a World That's Lost Its Way. And we're gaining a fresh look at God's most basic laws for living. We call them the Ten Commandments. Now, the Eighth Commandment we're looking at today, you shall not steal, is much like the last two commandments. In the, in the original Hebrew text, it is only two words. Remember, the Sixth Commandment was no murder. The Seventh Commandment, no adultery. The third commandment is equally blunt, the eighth commandment, no stealing. Moses later expanded on that in Leviticus 19, 11 and 13, when he wrote, do not steal, do not defraud or rob your neighbor, do not hold back the wages of a hired worker overnight. In just a minute, we're gonna look at four ways we commonly break this eighth commandment. But I wanna begin today by talking about the basis, the need for this commandment. Why does God talk about not stealing? There's a basic assumption here that frankly is under attack today in our country. And it's the assumption that people have a right, not just a right, but a responsibility to acquire personal property. Today, there are some woke Christians who are trying to teach that we shouldn't have personal property, that we shouldn't have differing levels of income, that the Bible advocates a kind of Christian Marxism or sanctified socialism where everybody ought to have the same amount and 
earn the same amount of money. In fact, I actually heard the pastor of one woke church say, the great commission for churches is to end income disparity. That's the mission of the church, to make sure everybody has the same amount of money. Is that true? Well, some people actually misuse the Bible to promote such an idea. They turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 32, these words about the freshly birthed church and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. See, pastor, there it is. Everybody sold their goods, put it in the common pool, and everybody enjoyed the same level of income. But that's just a superficial reading of the text. When we looked at this in our study of Acts, we pointed out that this giving of your assets and pooling of assets was voluntary. It wasn't confiscatory. Nobody forced the church to do that. Individuals chose to do that. But in the same passage, the Bible honors personal property. In Acts 5 verse 4, remember, Peter was chastising Ananias for lying about the amount of money he had given. He had claimed to, sell a, to have sold a piece of property and given all the proceeds to the church, and he held back a portion. And Peter said, Ananias, why did you lie? For while your property remained unsold, didn't it remain under your control? In other words, it was yours to do with whatever you wanted to do. That's the idea of personal property. Another interesting passage in Scripture is found in Philippians 4, verses 11 and 12. I bet most of you know this passage by heart. Paul said, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along in humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In other words, he said, I know how to live according to a budget. If I have a lack of resources, I cut back. If I have an abundance of resources, I enjoy it. I've learned to be content in both circumstances. Now, these words were written 25 years after the birth of the church in Acts 2. If the goal of the church had been to flatten income disparity and made it that everybody had the same amount of money, then Paul never would have learned to cut back. He wouldn't have needed to. He never would have learned how to experience abundance. He never had abundance. Everybody had the same amount. My point is, God's plan is not for sanctified socialism. And the reason I bring that up right now is, if the Bible teaches that we have a right and responsibility to acquire personal property, then we have the right and responsibility to protect that property. And that's what this Eighth Commandment is all about. If you don't protect personal property, a value in Scripture, you're going to have anarchy in society. And our country got a good look at that back in 2020. Remember in the aftermath of the horrible murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, there were some woke mayors who decided that they wanted to defund the police, especially the mayors of Seattle, Washington and San Francisco, California. In San Francisco, they defunded the police, and the result was shoplifting increased. They didn't even send police to shoplifting calls. Businesses, as a result, were boarded up. 
Other businesses refused to move into downtown San Francisco. And the result was the mayor eventually had to reverse her policy and call for an increase in funding of police. The whole assumption is personal property is part of God's plan and it's his plan for us to protect that property. Now, how do you acquire possessions? If it's God's will for us to accumulate money and accumulate possessions to care for ourselves and our family, how do you do it? Well, there are three and only three ways to acquire property, and all three are mentioned in Ephesians 4, 28. Paul wrote, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. High school seniors, this is a very important principle for you to understand at the beginning of your uh, college education and as you try to find God's will regarding your work. The primary method God gives for acquiring property is through our work. That is, we must labor performing what is good according to our hands. In Deuteronomy 8.18, God said, you shall remember the Lord your God for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. God gives each one of us the power not to become billionaires or millionaires, but to make the wealth, the money we need to take care of ourselves and to others. Have you ever heard the phrase, he's a self-made man or he's a, she's a self-made woman? There is no such thing. Nobody is self-made. We are all God-made. And God gives us the gifts, the ability, even the energy to work and to make a living. And that's God's plan. The way we take care of ourselves is through our work. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, Paul said, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Very simple. No work, no money, no food. That's God's plan. Now, don't write me any emails. Yes, there are exceptions to that, and the Bible gives them. If somebody is disabled and not able to work, we are to be generous and compassionate and help provide a safety net for those who can't work. But Paul is saying those who can work should work, and they shouldn't eat if they don't work. In Genesis 1.28 it's very clear, God created the first man and woman to be workers. Look at this, God blessed them, that is Adam and Eve, and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every other living thing that moves on the earth. We were created to be workers because God is a worker. We are created in his image. Look at Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, do you know what is significant about this verse? What is significant about Genesis 2, 15? It comes before Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, here's why that's significant. Do you remember what's recorded in Genesis 3? It's how sin came into the world. The fall of man and the curse that resulted from that fall. But there are a lot of people who mistakenly believe work itself is a curse. It's a curse from God. It's because of the fall of Adam and Eve that we have to work 
for a living. If only Adam and Eve hadn't blown it in the garden, I could be sitting on the French Riviera eating bonbons. I mean, that's what a lot of people think. No, before the fall, God said, I'm creating you to be a worker, not just to make money, but you find your fulfillment in your work. God meant for us to find fulfillment in our work. I want to introduce an idea to our seniors today, and it's the idea of your life work. One of the most important things you'll ever discover in these next few years is what your life work should be. My friend Bob Beal describes and defines life work as that work which is the best use of the rest of your life. Your life work is that work which is the best use of the work of your, the rest of your life. And your life work will always be the intersection of two things. First of all, your passion. What do you really care about? What are you really interested in? And secondly, your giftedness. What has God uniquely gifted you to do? And when you find that intersection between your passion and your giftedness, you've discovered your life work. Philippians 2.13 says, it is God at work within us, giving us the desire, the passion, and the power to do his will. My friend Bob also says, an activity is only work if you'd rather be doing something else. Hopefully, you find that life work. That doesn't mean it's not tiring. Work is exhausting. It became more exhausting after the fall. Genesis 3, 17 to 19 said, your work is going to be harder because of sin. But that doesn't mean it can't be fulfilling. And God's plan for you is to find that life work so that you can generate the income to acquire property and take care of yourself and your family. And there's something in the best sense of the word, a pride of ownership when you earn money and are able to buy those things that you and your family needs. I remember speaking of high school, when I got my first car, it was in 1971. My dad, as a hobby, rebuilt Volkswagens. And he gave me, as a gift, a Volkswagen Beetle. Remember the Volkswagen Bugs? I guess they're still running around here. And uh, I'd go down Central Expressway. I remember I asked my dad one time, where's the air conditioner? He said, oh, Robert, this has a 260 air conditioner. I said, 260 air conditioner? He said, yeah, roll down two windows and go 60 miles an hour and you'll have all the air you need. Now, I love that little car. The only problem was one day the fuel line in the back, that's where the engine was, worked its way loose, sprayed the engine, and the car blew up while I was driving it down Beltline Road. So I had to get rid of that Volkswagen. But you know what car I enjoyed even more than that? The first car I bought. I'll never forget, it was a Pontiac Grand Prix with bucket seats and red velour. Oh, Amy loved that red velour those bucket seats. And man, I took care of that car because I had purchased it. I remember the payment, $167 a month I'd send to the Pontiac Corporation, but I'd check the oil every day. I'd check the tires every day. Saturdays, I'd spend waxing it with the turtle wax, you know. 
I took care of it because I had purchased it. There's a fulfillment that comes when you earn money and you purchase what you need. And that's what God says is our basic way of acquiring property. It is through our work, work that is fulfilling, not tedious. The second way you can earn money and acquire possessions is through inheritance. Again, that's in Ephesians 3 or 4.28. It's implied when he says, work so that you will have something to share with those who have need. Uh, If we can, we shouldn't consume everything we have in a lifetime. We ought to leave something for our children and our children's children. Proverbs 13.22 says, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, that is to his grandchildren. I was reading in the New York Times this week that we are witnessing right now the greatest transfer of wealth in the history of our country. Right now, baby boomers, those 60 to 80, are beginning to retire, and they hold over $140 trillion of wealth that over these next years, they're going to be transferring either to family or churches or other organizations. Now, that's good news for those of you who are younger. The bad news is you're probably not going to get much of it, statistically speaking. There are a few who will receive billions of dollars. There's a little larger group that will receive millions of dollars, but 90% of people will receive thousands of dollars, not millions or billions of dollars. So, you know, um, if you don't have the right last name, chances are you're probably not going to inherit a great deal of wealth. We can work for money. We can inherit money. Those are legitimate ways to acquire property. But the Bible says the illegitimate way is through theft, through stealing it. Let him who steals steal no longer. Why do people steal? J.I. Packer put it this way. He said the temptation to steal property, to deprive a person of what he has, arise because fallen man always wants more than he has at the present and more than others have. He's saying the basis, the reason we steal is because of covetousness. We're not satisfied with what we have and we think somebody else has too much. And so we steal, breaking both the Eighth and the Ten Commandments. Now, I know you're going to think, well, this is one sin I'm not guilty of. I've never stolen anything. But remember, there's more than one way to commit adultery, more than one way to murder, more than one way to lie, as we'll see next time. There's also more than one way to steal. Let me mention four ways we violate this commandment. The first way is by despoiling, despoiling. I know, I wasn't familiar with that word either. I was looking up for a word to help me in my sermon outline, in my alliteration, (laughs) and came across this word despoiling. You know what despoil means? One theologian says it's an act of violence when a man's goods are forcibly plundered and carried off. It's armed robbery. That's what despoiling is, forcibly taking from somebody else what doesn't belong to them. How many of you have ever been the victim of a mugging or the break-in of a car or even your own home? How many of you have had that? Large number of people. You know how violated you feel when somebody invades your space. But it's not just armed robbers who despoil people. 
students who cheat on an exam. You're invading somebody else's space to take what is not yours. Employees who take home office supplies, they're invading somebody else's space to profit themselves. Did you know it's even possible to steal ideas from people uh, without giving them credit? Claim for your own what really belongs to somebody else. A few years ago, I received an email from a woman in Georgia. She and her husband watched Pathway to Victory on Saturday nights on their local TV station. She said in her email, imagine my surprise after listening to you Saturday night when I went into our church Sunday and heard our pastor preach your message basically word for word. And not only that, he passed out an outline that had come directly off your website. Now, that doesn't bother me at all, you know. Everything's grist for the preacher's mill. Dr. Crystal used to say, all originalism and no plagiarism makes for adult preaching. <laughs> Which, but if you're gonna quote extensively from somebody, whether in a paper at school or whether in a sermon or a speech, if you're gonna do it word for word, give credit. Don't pretend it's yours if it's not yours. That's how we despoil, by taking by force. A second way that we steal is through dishonesty. This is a little more subtle, but it's misrepresenting truth in order to gain from other people. Now, in biblical times, the way you did that was to have dishonest scales and balances. In Proverbs 11.1, 1, Solomon says, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. If you were buying a commodity from a merchant and he had a false weight or a false balance, he might tell you he's giving you a quart of oil when he's just giving you three quarters of a quart of oil. He might tell you you're getting a pound of wheat when you're just getting a half a pound of wheat. Now today, we're much more sophisticated in how we misrepresent the truth. How many of you have ever received one of those phishing emails trying to get you to surrender personal information? Uh, Amazon tells you, oh, we've messed up your order and we need your social security number. Well, it's not Amazon or your bank telling you that you've got deficient funds. It's somebody trying to get information from you. In fact, just Friday afternoon, I was told there is a man in the country right now calling people on the phone pretending to be me and saying that uh, I need your credit card uh, for $500, please give me your credit card number. Now, I wanna assure every viewer of Pathway to Victory, I am not gonna be calling you, asking you for your credit card number, unless I really need it. But uh, <laughs> no, no, I, I, I won't do that under any circumstances. So that's somebody misrepresenting the truth. That is dishonesty. There's another third way that we steal, despoiling, being dishonest. Thirdly, defrauding somebody. Defrauding means not paying somebody else what we owe them. It might be failing to pay a debt, a legitimate debt we have. Proverbs 3, 27 to 28 say, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's your, in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come back tomorrow and I will give you what you're owed. If you've got the ability to pay a debt, pay it. One reason we have sky high 
consumer interest rates on credit cards is because people who don't pay their debts. Another, by the way, debt we owe people is not just one another, but we owe the government a debt. When you refuse to pay your taxes, you are defrauding government of what belongs to them. Yes, it belongs to them. Matthew 22, 21, Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In fact, how many of you have heard the verse, owe no man anything except a debt of love? You know that scripture? I bet most people don't know the context of that scripture. It has to do with paying your taxes to government. Romans 13, Paul has just talked about government being ordained by God. Listen, most people don't realize this. God created not just the church, not just the church and family. He created three institutions, the church, the family, and government. Government is just as much of a God-created organization as the church is, or the family is. And he's given to each of those three organizations specific responsibilities. They aren't to get in somebody else's lane to do their responsibility. They're to keep their God-ordained responsibility. And the responsibility of government is to protect its citizens from evildoers. And Paul says in verse 6 of Romans 13, you also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Don't be delinquent in paying anyone, including the government, what is owed them. Another way we defraud people, not only failing to pay a debt, but failing to treat employers and employees fairly. Paul addresses this in Colossians chapters 3 and chapters 4. He says, for example, workers, when you don't give your employer a full day's work for a full day's wage, you're defrauding them. He says in verse 22 of Colossians 3, in all things, obey those who are over you on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men. Here's the Jeffers paraphrase. Don't work when the boss is looking only. Work when the boss isn't looking, knowing that the big boss is always looking. That's exactly what Paul is saying. Give your employer a full day's work for a full day's wage. But he also has a word for employers. He says in Colossians 4.1, be sure you're treating your employees with justice and fairness, knowing that you have a master in heaven. We're to be fair with our employees. We're to pay them what they're worth and what they're due. We're not to take advantage of them. One, I, one of the things I so appreciate about our church, our executive pastor, Ben, works very carefully with the personnel committee to make sure our staff is being paid equitably, fairly. And they do that. Our personnel committee is great about doing that. And that's one of the reasons we continue to be one of the top 100 places in Dallas people want to work at because we treat people fairly. That's important. That's a biblical principle. A third way we defraud is not only refusing to pay our debt or refusing to treat employees and employers equitably, but failing to give to God what he commands. That is a form of robbery. You say, wait a minute. 
Can you really rob God of something? Can you really stick your gun in his face and say, stick him up? Well, God said you can, and here's how. Malachi 3, he asked the very same question. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you, God? God answers in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. What's the remedy for it? Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there might be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows for you of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. There's a fourth way we rob people, and that is by defaming them, robbing them of their most important possession, their reputation. Whenever we spread slander and gossip about another person, we are guilty of robbing them of their reputation. That is, by the way, such a serious offense that God devotes a whole commandment, the ninth commandment, to that specific sin that we'll talk about next time. Let me say a word now about the cost of violating the eighth commandment. When we steal something from somebody else, no matter how we do it, we're certainly robbing them of something valuable, but listen to this, we're also robbing ourselves of something very valuable. It's found in First, or First Timothy 1 verse 19. Paul said, be sure to keep faith and a good conscience with some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Do you remember what a clear conscience is? Paul says that it's essential if you're gonna succeed in your relationship with God. Here's the definition of a clear conscience. It's the knowledge that neither God nor anybody else can accuse you of a wrong you've not attempted to make right. A clear conscience is that assurance that neither God nor anyone else can accuse you of a wrong you haven't attempted, you haven't attempted to make right. Are there certain people you try to avoid? You don't want to run into. If you see them coming, you go the other way. It's because you don't have a clear conscience. You're afraid they're going to accuse you of something between you that you've not attempted to make right. Now, lots of people who can accuse you and me of doing wrong but the key is that we've not attempted to make right. That's what a clear conscience is. There are some people who avoid God. They don't come to church. They don't read their Bibles. They don't pray because there's a gulf between them and God. They haven't confessed. They haven't made right what is wrong between them and their creator. When you steal from somebody and you haven't confessed it and attempted to make it right, you're gonna suffer from a guilty conscience let me ask you this question. Do you have the assurance that when you meet God one day, you won't be ashamed on the day of judgment, as the Bible says? Are you sure that God won't be able to accuse you of any wrong that you haven't made right? I came across this week an amazing story. I had not known it. Maybe you have. It's from the life of Davy Crockett, whom we often associate with the Alamo Many people don't know that before Davy Crockett came to Texas, he was a sophomore congressman from Tennessee. And during the legislative session of 1829 to 1830, one of the primary goals of the newly elected president, Andrew Jackson, 
was the passage of the Indian Removal Act. Now, that's a nice-sounding name from stealing land from the Indians, uprooting them from their southeastern homes in the southeastern United States, and relocating them to Indian territory, which is present-day Oklahoma. To make that journey, they had to travel along the Trail of Tears, it was caused. Not only because so many Indians lost their life in the process, but also because it meant the giving up of their tribal lands. Andrew Jackson was a Tennessean. Davy Crockett was a Tennessean. So it was thought that Davy Crockett would certainly vote with the president in this matter, and that because they were both Tennesseans, that uh, he would actually champion this measure by President Andrew Jackson. Davy Crockett did neither. Here's what he said about this. It was expected of me that I was to bow to the name of Andrew Jackson and follow him in all of his motions and turnings, even at the expense of my own conscience and judgment. Such a thing was new to me. His famous, or rather I should say infamous, Indian plan was brought forward and I opposed it for the purest motives in the world. Several of my colleagues got around me and told me how they loved me, but I was ruining myself. They said this was a favorite measure of the new president and I ought to go for it. I told them I believed it was wicked, an unjust measure, and that I should go against it, let the cost to myself be what it might. I voted against this Indian bill, and my conscience yet tells me that I have a good, honest vote, one that I believe will not make me ashamed on that day of judgment. Davy Crockett finished his term, was promptly defeated in his bid for re-election, came to Texas, gave his life at the Alamo for Texas independence. And yet when he met his creator, he met him with a clear conscience. He knew he could not be accused of stealing property that was not rightfully his. Will you be able to face God that way? Knowing that there's no wrong in your life, you haven't attempted to make right. Well, Pastor, I'm guilty of one, if not all of those ways of stealing, taking what's not mine. What should I do? A good answer to that is found in the story of Zacchaeus that wee little man in Luke chapter 19. Remember his story? Zacchaeus was a Jew, but he was a tax collector for the Romans. He had purchased the right from the Romans to collect taxes, and the Romans allowed him to charge whatever he wanted, get as much money as he could as long as he sent the right amount to Rome. And so he stole from his fellow Jews. He stole a lot of money. He was very rich. But that all changed one day when he was up in that sycamore tree and Jesus passed by and pointed him out and said, Zacchaeus, guess what? I'm coming to your house to eat today. Zacchaeus was so excited. He invited the Lord in, other guests. We don't know what the conversation was that day, but midway in the conversation, Zacchaeus stood up and said, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone and the Greek conditional clause, the first conditional clause is, and since I have defrauded, I will give back four times as much. That was interesting because the Old Testament law, Leviticus 6.5, only required that if you've stolen something, you give 
what you stole back and add 20% to it. Zacchaeus said, no, I'm going to do 400%. Remember what Jesus said when Zacchaeus made that proclamation? Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house. Was Jesus saying Zacchaeus purchased his salvation by giving money to the poor and making restitution? No. But what he was saying is this. Zacchaeus' willingness to make restitution was proof, was evidence that he had received the gift of salvation. Yes, if you've stolen from somebody else, you can be forgiven. But with that forgiveness by God comes a responsibility a responsibility to make restitution, to pay back what you've stolen, and to go and sin no more. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Let me ask you again the question, are you able to look God in the face and say, God, there's no wrong you can accuse me of that I haven't attempted to make right? If not, right now is the time to do that. First of all, by receiving God's forgiveness, by trusting in Jesus as your Savior. He's the only one who can make us clean spiritually. But if you receive that forgiveness, that true salvation, you're going to be motivated to go and make things right with those you have wronged in any way. Today, if you have never received God's gift of forgiveness in your life, I want to encourage you wherever you are, to pray this prayer silently in your heart as I pray it out loud, knowing that God is listening to you. Would you pray this with me? Dear God, thank you for loving me. I know I have failed you in so many ways, and I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I believe what I've heard today, that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for me, to take the punishment I deserve to take for my sins. And right now, I'm trusting in what Jesus did for me, not in my good works, but in what Jesus did for me to save me from my sins. Thank you for forgiving me and help me to live the rest of my life for you. In Jesus' name, amen. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.